This morning, I want us to look at no one not guilty. If you open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, we're coming to a dividing point, a very pivotal point in the book of Romans and also a pivotal point in our church as we're getting ready to uh, exit for a little while from Romans as we go into our Christmas season. But I want us to be thankful to God for who we are and how he's created us. And I know as we're going through the message, you might begin to wonder why this message on Thanksgiving for our service. Well, two reasons, to be honest with you. Number one, that's what comes next in Romans. But number two, I think when you get to the end, you'll understand why we need to be thankful. But what Paul is writing to, remember he was writing to this church in Rome. He's been wanting to go there and he has taken time that we've been through in the last nine weeks of being in Romans and he's talked, number one, about the Gentiles. He's talked to the pagan man and he's talked to the moral man. And then we spent some time and he talked to the Jews. So he has showed both of them how each of them were in need of a Savior. And that's what he's going to conclude to here as he wraps up this and he talks about both of them together. Do you know when it becomes in the eyes of the Lord, there is nothing different between the Jew and the Gentile but the fact that we are all guilty. There is not one who is not guilty, but we can be thankful that God provided a way for us. Let's take a look at Romans chapter 3. If you would stand, run your finger down to verse 9 and follow along with me, please. It says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of the peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Father God, would you just open our ears and our hearts now to hear from you. And Father, I just pray everything in the precious and the most holy name of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen. You may be seated. I was going this morning to get you to picture in your mind a courtroom. Many of you have seen courtrooms on TV or maybe you've been in a courtroom where you have the 
the judge that sits up on the judgment seat, and then you you have the uh, plaintiff and the defendant, and you you usually have a jury, and most of the time people are sitting on some very comfortable wooden benches. But what I want us to do is understand that this passage today was not written with that kind of court in mind. And what we're going to do today is we're going to go into a courtroom, but I want to you to picture yourself on an extremely supersonic jet as we all board this morning and we fly over in a matter of seconds to Jerusalem. We land in Tel Aviv and we make our way up to the Temple Mount. And if you remember, the city gates in those days is where courts and trials would be had. So each of you today are going to be sitting out in the audience. You're sitting on some stone-made benches. The sun is shining down on you. You can feel a little bit of warmth, and the breeze begins to blow through. And as you're sitting there, the courtroom unfolds before you. And any time that you are in a courtroom and there is a proceeding happening, there are several things that has to happen. The first thing that happens is there is a charge presented to the court. And then there is the indictments that are read. And those are the charges that are against them. And the indictments are telling what those charges are. And then there is a time for the defense to speak, and then there is the verdict. Many of you watching on TV this week, you might have saw the gentleman that had shot someone several years ago in defense of himself had been on trial. They had put charges against him, and then the prosecutors gave the indictment. He had a chance to speak, and then the verdict was rendered, and he was rendered innocent on all accounts. But today we're over in Jerusalem and what we're going to be coming before the court, Paul presents it this way. His charge is all or under sin. You see there at verse nine, it says, what then are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. If you'll notice there in verses 10, 11, and 12, you will see the word none, no, not one, or all, and there are seven references to that. You've probably heard me say before, many times we understand that seven is the number of completion. There are seven days to creation. We have seven days through our week, and that is a number oftentimes referred to as completion. So here is a complete charge against everyone because he says that it's against the Jews or the Greeks. At this particular point, there are two people groups, Jews, Greeks. Everyone in the world falls into one of those two categories. And he's saying that all are under sin. When we are born, we're born with a sin nature, and we are under sin, and sin begins to control us. And I want us to look, now that he has made the charge that all are under sin, we are going to look at that that is our weakness. Our weakness is the charge that is against us, and that is that we are under sin, Secondly, I want us to look at the iniquity or what I will say is the indictment. 
And the indictment, if you look in these next few verses, you are going to see that there are actual 14 indictments there. But let's begin understanding what some of our weakness is. And it says that there is none righteous. There's one of the indictments. It says not even one. There is none who understand. There's no one, he's saying, that does right in God's eyes. You see, we have to understand that this is a mirror that we're looking at. A mirror, God's word. Have you ever looked in a mirror? What did you see? But you saw a reflection of what was there. And we take God as the light source to help us look into this mirror. And as you're looking in there, then we can begin to compare ourselves to God. And when we do that, we understand that none of us are right. It says not even one. He says none understand. Over in Ephesians chapter 4, we see this where he says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of, excuse me, the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. This understanding, they have no spiritual discipline, he's saying, when it comes to God. And understanding that that is our weakness, that's when he moves into the 14 indictments. Let me just share those with you real quick, and then we will move from that on to understanding them. The first indictment is that there is none righteous. The second indictment is who understands, and none do. And then none seek God. All have turned aside. They've become useless. There is none who does good. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongue speaks deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift. Destruction and misery are in their paths. Peace they have not. They have no fear. That is our iniquity. The indictments that are against us are our iniquity. Let's what is he talking about when he's looking and writing to them? We've talked about the righteous and that none have a discernment or understanding, but he says none seek for God. Remember, we are under sin and because we are under sin, we have then have a nature that doesn't lead us to God. Sin wants to control and, and separate us from God, but he also talks about there how we have deceived. And it says we've all turned aside. Didn't just happen. We made a, a choice at some point in our life to turn aside there from who God is, turned aside from seeking him. Do you know when we turn aside from God and we no longer seek him, then we become useless in the spiritual kingdom until he comes in and does something for us. It says there that none do good, not even one. Now he then moves on from that unto the uh, talking about their mouth. I want you to picture this. You're out traveling in the woods because we're fixing to be on a path here. We're moving from the courtroom just a moment. And he says there that their throat is an open grave. 
the throat he's talking about is any form of an encasement. Have you ever been into the old cemeteries and you've seen those little, what we call them, above-ground crypts? They have encased a body. And sometimes you see them broken open. But what he's talking about here, that their throat is an open grave where their tongues, they keep deceiving people. How many of you have ever come across a dead and decomposing animal? Can you smell it right now? That's a stench. There's a foulness to that smell. And that's what Paul is accusing them here, accusing of, is that the throat is an open grave. The things that are coming out of mankind's mouth is a stench. It is foul. And he says, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. They keep leading people in the wrong direction. We've talked about the false ones that come in, the things that we say and then that we don't do, and the poison of the asp. He's talking here about the Egyptian cobra, probably one of the most deadly snakes there is, that with a bite from that cobra, you would be dead. And he's saying that their deceiving lips are like poison. You know, we hear things, we see things, we say things, Scripture tells us that there is life and death in the tongue. And the things that are spoken can kill just as the venom of that cobra. And then he says his mouth who is full of cursing, those that are speaking evil and bitterness. Have you ever known anyone that did that? Hopefully you've never been one of the ones speaking in that direction but he moves on from just their speaking to their feet. We've got the mouth and the feet and the destruction of misery are in their past. The course of our behavior, destruction and misery. You know, people can fall away from the Lord. People can be out of God. People can be a non-believer and the blessings of God are not there. We're thankful for believers that we have that. But in our path of life, sometimes we course and choose to go in a different direction. And he says, because of that, there's no peace. They've not known the peace. I've probably shared this with you before, and you know God created each of us with a desire within us for a relationship with him. Have you heard that before? God wants us to bring glory to him. God wants us to honor him. God wants us to be a relationship with him. And until he is there, there is no peace. There is no comfort. As a believer, when Christ comes into us and we drift away or we choose to step aside momentarily, there's no peace in our life. He uses Holy Spirit to bring it back. And he says that there, this all happens because of one thing. And that's the eye. You see, our eye, what does he say there at verse 18? There is no fear of God before their eyes. You can take this word fear and you can look at it in two different ways and both of those can actually fit. We think of fear sometimes as being scared. You know, there is a fear of God for some people that God is judge. 
And rightfully so, there is a fear. But the main fear of God before their eyes is the reverence and respect. And because there is no reverence or respect before their eyes, then all of these other things happen. You might say that this is a little harsh. Well, he was coming, as Paul was writing, he wrote these indictments from the Old Testament. That was their law. He said there at verse 10, as it is written, he was pulling up what God had said. And he's saying here that this, and some people don't necessarily agree, but there's no fear of God before their eyes. If there was true, sincere, heart, respect, and adoration for God, people would not act the way that people do. Believer or non-believer, we come before God through faith in Jesus Christ and we receive him, but at times we want to do things our own way. We want to follow after our own paths. So Paul was talking about that and then he shows us from there what our curse is. And our curse we see at verses 19 and 20 It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For though the law comes, the knowledge of sin through that. So picture yourself now, we're sitting back there on those stone benches Paul has gotten up and he has given the charge and the charge was a harsh charge that all everyone are under sin and then he has his opportunity to read out the indictments that are against them that we've just gone through and then we begin to see the next step for us it's What is the cause of this? What is our curse? What comes from there being no fear of God? And that is that it speaks to those that are in law that the mouth may be closed and the whole world will be accountable to God. Every single human being on the face of this earth is accountable to God, to God's standards, to God's way but here it's very strong when it says 19 that now we know that whatever the law speaks it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed we're now at the point of the trial that the charge is given the indictments have been read now it is time for the defense to speak and after these indictments There is silence in the courtroom. Why is that? Because taking God's word, at that time taking the law, the Old Testament, and when we look into the mirror and we compare ourselves to God, all mouths will be closed. We have no defense, we are guilty. He says, all the world may become accountable to God. 
We're all held liable to judgment and punishment. Coming down to the end of this section that Paul is talking with all of these graces and all of who the people are, showing that everyone is guilty. It says all the world may be accountable. And here it is. It says, this is part of the reason I'm thankful. You're going to find this a little crazy at first. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You know what I'm thankful for right here? That there's not a thing in the world that I can do to buy my justification. I want you to think about that a minute. There's not a thing in the world that you can do that will make you right with God. Do you know why I'm thankful for that? Because if I can't earn it, I can't lose it. If I can earn something, then I can do something to lose it. Think about that. All the world, the law, no flesh will be justified in it. We can't earn it. We can try all we want, but there's going to be no peace. I'm thankful for what comes next in the story, and that's about the grace of Jesus Christ, amen? His love and his grace for us that we're gonna be looking at next that justifies us through faith. The things that are coming lets us know that we can't do it, but we have a loving God that loves us and that he brings salvation to us and he gives it to us at the cost of his son, Jesus Christ. But then he says that for the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law of the Old Testament. The purpose of that is to show us how holy God is and how far away we miss the mark of holiness. But he doesn't leave it there. It also shows his love for us all through the Old Testament. It's leading up to the birth of the crucifixion of his son. It portrays all the Old Testament. It says, here is the standard. It's God's holiness. Here's the things he did for his people. Here's what he's going to do for us. Here's a nation of Jews that he has chosen to be his people, and they follow after him, and then at times they want to deviate off that path but he still loves them and they come back to him. We learn that we are sinners through the law. I believe that's the reason Jesus came. And when he was here, you remember he said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but what? But to fulfill the law. He's not doing away with the law. The law always has to be there to show us that we're sinners. But he came to fulfill that because the only way to cover for sin is the sacrifice of blood of a perfect one, the perfect lamb. Jesus came to fulfill that. He was the ultimate, perfect, unblemished lamb. And he died on that cross for us because in this courtroom, we can now move each of us from the seat of watching this trial 
And each one of us are now the one's own trial. The charge is you're a sinner. And then we have 14 indictments against each of us that fit us. And when it comes time for us to speak, to give our defense, the only thing we can do humanly after looking in the mirror is to hang our head in silence because we have no defense. And then the verdict is rendered that by works of the law, no one will be justified. No matter what you've done in your life, no matter how good you've been, the verdict is you are guilty. You are guilty of sin, and the verdict is condemnation and death. But someone steps in. His name, Jesus Christ, says, I'm going to pay that price. I'm going to step in. I'm going to be the one to take your verdict. And he went on that cross, and because of that, we're going to be moving to in probably January into the righteousness of God now rest on each and every one who has received the gift of forgiveness through salvation. So we can look at this Bible or your Bible, God's word, his spoken living word, and we can use it as a mirror and we can look at ourselves, and with Jesus Christ as the light, we can compare ourselves to him. And you can take the book and you can look at it as a negative book of all the do's and the don'ts and how horrible we are and how wretched we are. Or we can take this book and we can let it shine light that as a believer, God loves us. As a non-believer, he loves but he loves enough that he sent his son so that he can look at us and we can be righteous and we can be with him. So while there is no human, no, not one who is not guilty of sin against God, on the scales, it doesn't weigh out. But when it comes to Jesus Christ and he steps in, makes all the difference of the world. You see, not one is not guilty. Why nine weeks, preacher? We know all that. We've got to understand that it doesn't matter who we are, what we've done, what race we are, what nationality we are, what side of the tracks we live on, what job we've had. The first thing has to be an admittance of guilt. What is that group? Is it AA, Alcoholics Anonymous? One of the first steps is you have to admit that you're an alcoholic. Why is that? You know, you can't recover from something that you don't admit you have. We don't seek justice in our life. We don't come after a Savior. We don't feel the call of God because he calls us if we don't understand we're a sinner. But I'm so thankful that it doesn't stop there, that the 
Second half of the Bible is the New Testament, the new covenant where God shows his love for us and what wonderful things he has in store for us. While we may be guilty, we can stand before a holy and righteous God and he sees us as holy and righteous. See, he's got the perfect mirror. You know, in our eyes, you ever been to the fun house and you got those mirrors that are all kinds of different shapes? There's one there that I don't like. Probably most of you don't. You know, you walk up and you look in the mirror and we're about this big around. Well, that's how we see ourselves. But then there's that other mirror that shows a skinny person. You know, I could lose a few pounds myself. But God looks through and he sees us perfect. And we can be thankful, number one, that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. At the foot of the cross, everyone is a sinner. At the foot of the cross, everyone is due justice of condemnation. But God said it's not about what you do, it's about what I did. And we look up on the cross and we see his son and thankfully that God looks down through that blood and he sees us and since I didn't earn it, I can't mess it up and I can't lose it. What a thing to be thankful for, the assurance of our salvation in Jesus Christ. May you bow your heads. Father, today we're just thankful for your love for us, Father. I, I say that often but can never say it enough. Father, I'm thankful that you sent your son to die on the cross because, Father, I couldn't ever be right in your eyes. I could never do enough. I could never earn my salvation. And, Father, I'm thankful that everyone is a sinner so I'm not distinguished out in that nature. Father, I'm thankful that everyone can come to your cross, that everyone can receive salvation. And Father, because you bestowed it upon us, Father, I'm thankful that we can't lose it. And Father, I'm thankful that you call us because we're all under sin. We don't seek after you on our own. But because of your love, you call us. Father, would you be with us this week as we celebrate this time of Thanksgiving? Father, would you be with families, Lord, who have lost loved ones in recent year, two years, three years, Father? And even further than that, as holidays, Father, open wounds and memories flood in. Father, would you surround these families with your love and your peace and your presence? Father, as we just call on you now, we say thank you. Thank you for creating us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for providing an answer to our silence of guilt. And that is salvation through your son, Jesus Christ, and through Jesus Christ alone. Father, we acknowledge your holiness and your worthiness. And Father God, I just pray everything in the precious, most holy name of your son, Jesus.